Well, children, as is always the case, you'll find your words in their normal place. I shouldn't say always. That's not true. <laughs> and that's my fault. They're there tonight, right? They were there last week. They weren't the week before, after I told you that. I'm sorry. Um, but they are there tonight, and you'll see them there, and I hope you will listen for those. Uh, it's that time of year when most of us, um, over the next few weeks, if we haven't already, uh, will watch a version of Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. Uh, the version uh, you may prefer has the title of Scrooge or maybe Ebenezer. Uh, your version, you may prefer, uh, you may prefer the musical uh, over the one that isn't a musical, but, and, and just in case there's someone in here that, that is not familiar with it, I, I just want to briefly describe it to you. Uh, it's the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, surprise, surprise. But um, he is a grumpy, uh, mean miser, right? He has more money uh, than he really knows what to do with or really wants to do with. He hoards it. He doesn't spend it, and he doesn't even spend it on himself. He mistreats everybody around him, uh, including his coworker um, and Bob Cratchit, as well as his family, what limited family he has uh, around him. And on Christmas Eve, he's visited. Uh, he's visited by uh, the ghost of his uh, business partner, uh, Bob Marley, Bob Marley, um, not Bob Marley, Jacob Marley. <laughs> That's funny. Um, by Jacob Marley. And the spirits of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. And they all show him his life and the error of his ways. And he ends up with great re regret, great remorse, and even fear as he uh, journeys through that evening. And the ghost of Christmas future is particularly a, a dark uh, ghost. He's, a, he's, he's got a cloak and a, and a hood, and he never speaks. And, and the only thing you see is his long pointed fingers, you know, bony fingers. And, and, and despite never speaking, um, Scrooge is able to understand what he says or what he's wanting him to learn. And he does that through kind of gathering, right, from uh, the things that he points at and from the previous two experiences with the other two ghosts, um, as well as rhetorical questions that he asks of himself. And at one point, Scrooge is transported to a graveyard, and the ghost points to a headstone. Dickens writes this. He says, Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, said Scrooge, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they shadows of things that may be only? Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends, to which, if persevered in, they must lead, said Scrooge. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it thus with what you show me. 
The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger, read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name, Ebenezer Scrooge. Scrooge, of course, right, realizes that he's been offered a chance to change. And spoiler alert, right, he, he takes that opportunity. And he, and he wakes up on Christmas morning, and he's a new man. He's transformed into a gentler, kinder, more generous man who sets out to make up for lost time, and, and he begins to share his wealth and be reconciled to those that he has turned off and offended. Well, I wish I could say that this story that Jesus tells has a happy ending like that, but it doesn't. Um, It's a little different. It too points to the fact that how we live today foreshadows certain ends, and if we change our course, the end will change as well. But unfortunately, again, this doesn't have a happy ending. The main character of the story doesn't encounter ghosts who shows him the mistakes that he's made. He simply dies. And when he realizes the error of his ways, which he does, there isn't hope for change or redemption. His destiny has been fixed. And to make matters worse, he has no way of warning his brothers who are headed down the same path. They're living the same way. And he can do nothing. And even if he did, they wouldn't be convinced. Jesus says they wouldn't be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. Well, fortunately for us tonight, uh, we have the opportunity to hear the words of warning from the one, from Jesus, who himself was raised from the dead. And we are given the opportunity to heed the warning he lays before us in this passage. Now, there's a small debate uh, as you read about this passage. There's a small debate regarding whether this is a parable or a record of something that actually took place because Luke doesn't say Uh, which it might be, but I tend to believe that it is a parable, which means it's a fictional story, and the characters in it are characters uh, to whom we can identify. And the story is used to illustrate a reality, and the reality itself is what, um, well, it's the force behind the reality that gives the force to the story. And I love this description one pastor shared. He said, even if it's simply a story and even if it may not give us a literal description of the geography of heaven and hell, it still tells us the truth about time and eternity. John Calvin writes, he says, the Lord is uh, painting a picture which represents the condition uh, condition of the future life in a way that we can understand. And in this story, we have two men, we have two destinies that point to two options. That's the outline. Two men, two destinies, and two options. And as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in 
prayer before we begin. Uh, Father, by your spirit, we ask that you would grant power to the preaching of your word. Would you give us all ears to hear and eyes to see the truth uh, that is spoken here? And we ask that you would grant us the ability to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and his gospel. We ask you to awaken our attention, convict us and challenge us, and then would you refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. I am in need of your assistance because I am weak and needy, as always, and so I'd ask that you would grant me support and strength and the filling of your spirit, that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Uh, Speak through me now, for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray, amen, and amen. Let's begin first with the two men, okay? Uh, The first man has no name, but is described in verse 19 simply as a rich man, And he's a rich man that wears purple. Uh, That purple means that um, he's wearing something that is incredibly expensive because it's made from the dye of rare snails. Uh, That color purple is a color that's considered royal and majestic and was the choice of nobility. And those who wore it were displaying their wealth and their prosperity and their luxury uh, in which they lived. He also had enough money to buy underwear that was made of fine linen, and typically that is, or in most cases, it was indistinguishable from silk. And he didn't just eat daily, he feasted daily, and he didn't just feast daily, he feasted sumptuously. It's a great word. Um, It means that he, uh, he feasted splendidly or in an energetic way, or an energetic way, And, and basically what that means is every meal was a party. And every meal consisted of a more-than-you-can-eat buffet. It was superfluous and pretentious. And in verse 20, we learn that he lived in a mansion that was accessible only through this very high gate. It was the size of gate that normally um, was around a, a palace or even a city. So basically, this guy had everything that he could need or want. He was comfortable uh, beyond comfortable. He had everything, uh, he had no, con- uh, he didn't have a care or concern in the world. Everything was at his fingertips, and he was more than satisfied. The only thing we know about the second man was he didn't have anything but a name, right? And that's not the only thing we know, but we know that the, the, he's described only by, by his name at first, right? He has nothing but a name, let's put it that way. And his name was Lazarus. Um, he's the only character in all of Jesus' story, Jesus's stories. If you go and you read through them, he's the only one that's actually uh, only character that's given a name. And so, because he's the only one that's given a name, we we need to pay attention to the name, and it means God has helped. Interestingly enough, and it shouldn't be overlooked. He'd been literally put where he was and possibly thrown there, purposefully to beg, more than likely. He wouldn't have been directly in front of the gate. He would have been off to the side of the gate, but he would have been in a position where everybody that came and left through the gate would have seen him. He would have been obvious. He was covered. He he wasn't covered with expensive clothes. He was covered with sores, and those sores oozed. And the oozing drew the stray dogs from town, and they would lick his wounds. And because they would lick, 
he was probably, we gathered, disabled and was unable to fight them off. So he's isolated, he's alone, he's suffering, he's ceremonially unclean. And if that weren't enough, he's hungry. Verse 21 says he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Notice it says he desired to be. It didn't say or doesn't say he was fed. So we have this, we have this gentleman, we have this rich man uh, who has everything, and yet he, he doesn't even give the leftovers from these buffets to a man that he sees every day sitting outside his gate right, right at his feet. And in verse 24 says, he even knows his name. He knows him as Lazarus and yet nothing. It's a stark contrast, is it not? It's more than a contrast between a have and a have not. It's more than comfort versus discomfort. And the contrast really isn't even about the wealth of the rich man because we know Abraham is placed in the story. Abraham was a wealthy man. Abraham, Abraham in just a minute, will be at the right side or at the side of Lazarus. And so it's not the wealth per se that's the issue. The issue is that he was a rich man who was selfish, overindulgent, Gluttonous and a lover of money. He was clinging. Remember last week, he was clinging to the wrong things, right? This follows on the heels of what, what we looked at the last two weeks, especially last week. And so he was a, uh, one who was, was clinging to the wrong things. And he was you know, seeking the wrong approval. And he was resting in the wrong work. And he's assuming all along that his possessions and his prestige, his position were all evidence of him being in right standing with God. He and God were in communion. And yet every day, every day he would pass by Lazarus, walk right, right by him and fail to help. Every day, he had the opportunity to exercise compassion. He had the opportunity to express mercy. He could exhibit generosity. He could extend hospitality, and yet he chose not to. He was too focused on himself and the care of himself than to care for a neighbor in need. Not in general, but one sitting outside at his own on his own steps, right outside his house. He could have fed him. He could have clothed him. He could have treated him medically in some way or paid for it. But like the priest and the Levite, right, in the Good Samaritan, he went the long way around to get into the gate. And unlike the Samaritan who took care of the man in the ditch, regardless of the cost, the rich man here doesn't help Lazarus. He avoids him at all costs. Ralph Davis wrote this. He said, Jesus did not say he had no right to be rich. Jesus is not a Marxist. 
So far as we know, he obtained his wealth honestly. Nor does Jesus imply that he should get rid of his riches, nor that he should save the world, only that he should have aided the particular man who was plainly in view in his daily life. And Philip Ryken said, the one human being in the world who was in the best position to help refused to do so. Brothers and sisters, we have questions, of course, to ask at this point. Those questions are these. Do we use what we have for the sake of others? Do we use what God has given us and what we have for the sake of others or only for ourselves? Are we overindulgent and extravagant and unwilling to share that which the Lord has given us and that which we have? Do we harshly and intentionally avoid those in need? Do we obviously and thoughtlessly neglect those in need? And then I might I suggest I want to take this even a step farther than that. And again, listen to these words from Ralph Davis. He says this, Someone says we need to assess the needs of the homeless in our community. Mr. Davis writes, well, maybe. Another suggests we need to form a study committee to see whether our church can put a program in place to meet this sort of need. Mr. Davis says, no, please don't. He says, forget the study committee and program. You don't need to go looking for something or some outstanding sample of human wretchedness. Your Lazarus, he writes, might be the wife you've been neglecting. Maybe your Lazarus is the husband you've emotionally stiff-armed for years. Maybe your Lazarus is the child you seldom read to, play with, or pray with because there's always such pressing items on your agenda. Then again, your Lazarus may be the widow next door whom you've never visited since the death of her husband. He concludes with this, who needs study committees and programs for this? The question we ask is, who is right in front of us that needs our help? We'll be getting in verse 22 the story shifts abruptly, right? And we learn that our um, external or earthly condition made up of our health, wealth, and comfort or our lack thereof is not an indicator of our standing before God. We also learn that it's better if our best life isn't now but later. And then we learn this about death. A few things, three in particular. One, we learn that death is inevitable. It's an inevitable and universal experience that no one escapes. Secondly, we learn that death is not the end, but it's a transition between the temporal and the eternal. 
And then thirdly, we learn that in the words of one pastor, death is a great equalizer. Verse 22 says, both men die, matter of fact. And there's this reversal of fortune that takes place. Lazarus is carried by angels to Abraham's side. Your version of the scripture might say Abraham's bosom. Uh, either way, it's a uh, description of heaven or paradise uh, where believers go and wait for Christ's return or waiting for his final resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. And we're not told, anywhere in the passage, we're not told that Lazarus is a believer. However, all that we've read to this point in Luke's gospel informs us of the fact that he is, well, because he's there, it means that he's repented of his sin and he's turned in faith to Christ. It wasn't his earthly condition that had secured his place there. It wasn't, um, it wasn't his lack of wealth or his lack of health or his lack of comfort that earned his salvation. He was apparently looking for Jesus in the midst of those things. He was looking for Jesus despite his poverty and despise, uh, despite his lack of health and despite his uh, suffering and isolation and loneliness. It's, it's the transitive law of equality. We, we kind of deduce this because if Lazarus was greeted by Abraham and was at his side, and Paul calls Abraham the father of all believers, right? A equals B B equals C, so A equals C, right? So Lazarus is a believer. And he's there with Abraham. But the rich man's not as fortunate. Uh, he arrives in Hades where he will await the final judgment prior to his final destination of hell. And while waiting, he begins to experience all that he's going to experience more fully and finally when Jesus returns and the final judgment takes place. And we learn several things, not only about where he is in Hades, but also hell. We, we learn first that it is real. They are real. Despite what many believe and what many Christians are even professing today, Hades and hell are real places. They're literal places. They're not figments of our imagination that we've created in order to, to convince to convince others through scare tactics. Secondly, we learn that there, there are places of severe pain and torture and agony, anguish, torment. And those who are there or those who will be there are or will be conscious of the dreadful experience that they undergo that unfortunately will never be relieved or reduced. We also learn from these verses in 23 to 26 that they are permanent. There's no future opportunity to leave or even upgrade to a more pleasant position. Again, it's fixed. The eternal destiny is set and fixed upon death. And the chasm that's there between heaven and hell cannot be crossed were closed. Fourth, they're reserved for those who are unrepentant and reject the Lord Jesus. Right? The rich man had it all, 
earthly speaking. He had every advantage, every creature comfort, every need and want met, but he loved his stuff more than he loved his neighbor or the Lord. And his neglect of Lazarus every day was simply a symptom of his hard heart, his hard heart toward God. He remained in his sin. The rich man remained in his sin and chose to pay his debt himself, the debt that he owed the Lord. He himself chose to face his maker without a mediator and bear the wrath of God himself. And finally, we learn that there, the consequences are just. They're just consequences. They're, they're consequences of offending and rejecting a holy, righteous, infinite, eternal God. And that offense is worthy of eternal punishment. And in the end, there's this great reversal. Uh, in verses 25 to 26, the rich man cries out to Abraham, crying out for help. And what does he ask for? To have mercy. Abraham, have mercy. And how, how, how could he do that? And he said, send Lazarus. Right? Send let the audacity and the pride remaining even where he was. As if Lazarus was his servant. But the audacity to ask Lazarus to do for him what he was never willing to do for Lazarus, which was to end his suffering. And Abraham says, no, sorry. You've had your fill. You've had your fill of good things. Lazarus has had his fill of bad things. It's now time for him to be comforted, not you. You had your chance. What's done is done. The rich man who experienced his best life now had had well, he now exchanges, right? At that moment, he exchanged the amenities and the comforts and the frills and the extras and the indulgences and the extravagances and the luxuries and delicacies for pain, torture, agony, anguish, and torment. He had lived his best life now, and he'd pay for it for eternity. Lazarus, on the other hand, who had had to that point probably, he would say, experienced his worst life now, exchanged the pain and sorrow and degradation and humiliation and suffering and isolation and loneliness and suffering uh, for restoration and joy and righteousness and rest and riches and fellowship. His best life was after. And that, of course, leads us to two options. And those two options are these. The story informs us, as we've been informed all along. But we can remain in our sin. You can remain in your sin. Or you can choose to admit you're a sinner, repent of your sin, and turn in faith. To Christ. You can choose to love the wrong things 
seek the wrong approval and, and trust in or rest in the wrong work, or you can love God, seek His approval, and rest in the work of Christ. Trust in the work of Christ on your behalf. You can remain short-sighted. You can look short-term and live in light of what is temporary and won't last, or you can live in light of those things that are temporary and fleeting, or you can look long-term. You, you can have your eyes on what's ahead and live in light of eternity. You can choose your best life now or your best life after. And it's the same thing we've been hearing. I've already said that, but you, it's the same thing we've been hearing throughout, throughout this gospel, right? Accept or reject Christ. Before Christ, be against Christ. Life or death. Now he adds, heaven or hell. But the parable, and, and this has been true all along, but Jesus is being really pointed at this point, and he says, you know, this, this parable tells us that we better choose while there is a choice to be made. Choose now. Because there's going to come a point when we no longer have a choice. The choice is going to be removed, and our destiny is going to be set. And death can come as quickly for any of us in this room as it did in the passage. We can die as a child, we can die as a teenager, we can die as an adult. We can die, die tonight, we can die tomorrow. We can die at home, we can die on the playground, we can die at work. We may experience some unexpected accident or calamity like a tornado. We could be faced with some illness or like friends of our experience this week, one of our friends' father sat down in his recliner and didn't wake up. And if you happen to be somebody, if you happen to be somebody who is holding out for more evidence or waiting for a miracle, right, or you need another sign or writing on the wall, let me simply say this. You all already have all you need to make a choice. Everything is right there in front of you. In verses 27 to 31, the rich man begs again, and he begs Abraham to send Lazarus to go warn his brothers. I've already mentioned this, but go into a little more detail. He goes to warn his brothers. He, he wants them to go, um, because again, they're, they're living in the same way. They're headed down the same path. They're, they're in for the same frightful end. It's coming for them too. And he recognizes he's made a wrong choice. We see that. He is conscious of what's going on. He knows what he's done. And he asks for Lazarus to go. Again, the audacity. But it's too late for him. It's not too late for them. So they need word. They need to go. They need to change course. Change the ends. But notice what Abraham said in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, Abraham again says, no, we're not going to do that. 
They hear the scriptures explained week in and week out in synagogue. They've heard the truth. They know the law and the prophets, and the law and the prophets point to Jesus. And the rich man says, no back. Right? You can, he- you can hear it in his voice. No, they-, they need more than the scriptures. They need something sensational to happen. The scriptures aren't enough, he says. They need some kind of extraordinary evidence. They need Lazarus. Send Lazarus back from the dead. If they see someone rise from the dead, then they're going to repent. If they see him and hear him. And in verse 31, Abraham says, nope. If they're not going to listen and heed to the scriptures, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Because the problem, listen, brothers and sisters, the the problem is not the evidence. The problem is the heart. The problem's the heart. If they were hard toward the scriptures, they're going to be hard toward the signs and wonders. Again, we've seen this. Do we we notice the story is not changing? (laughs) Right? Luke is giving us, laying everything out. It's, It's the same, it's the same truth. They're hard to the scriptures, they're going to be hard to signs and wonders, and they're hard to the scriptures and the signs and wonders because they're hard toward God. So if you're holding out, if you're holding out for evidence, hear me say that you have all you need. You've heard the word of God, you've heard the gospel, that is enough. The Bible's enough. Christ lived, died, and rose again for sinners like us. And this is his full and final word. And as he always does, and as he has been doing for us, through his word, he is calling out to us tonight to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Because the truth of the matter is the problem that you face, the problem we all face is much more dire than we realize. It's much worse than we think. And the extreme nature of the cure should inform us of the extreme nature of the problem we face. And it's really what we celebrate this time of year. Um, I know we get caught up. I get caught up right, in the sentimental side of things and, you know, with the lights um, and the movies and, and, and the sights and sounds and the, the lights and the music and the decorations and the presence. But when we think about it, this celebration of Christmas is really about the depth of our prav- depravity and the lengths God was willing to go and must go to save sinners like us. The eternal Son was God and was with God in the beginning. He was the one to whom and for whom all things were created. And he humbled himself, emptied himself of his glory, took on the flesh, 
and dwelt among us. He was born in the likeness of men. Jesus, whose birthday we celebrate, is the incarnate Son of God who lived perfectly. And he was, and he suffered unjustly, and he died horrifically. But he rose from the dead victoriously as a substitute. All of that as a substitute for sinners. And the Apostle Paul writes that God has exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And Paul also writes that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the story speaks to us tonight and says, do not wait. God speaks to us tonight. Christ speaks to us tonight. Do not wait. He is the only one who can save you. He says, repent and believe, for today is the day of salvation. And for for those of us who are believers, last word here, for us who are believers and are trusting in Christ and are resting alone in his salvation, I pray that this reminder of the reality of hell does a few things. One, I, I pray that it will renew our appreciation for our own salvation. May we thank God and may we praise the Lord for having been saved. We who, as we heard in Psalm 53, right? We we were not good. We were corrupt. Everything about us but God. So may it renew our appreciation. Secondly, may it revive our compassion for the lost. We all have friends and family who need the Lord. Thirdly, may it revive our, uh, may it reinforce our belief in the necessity of the gospel and its proclamation. It needs to be proclaimed. And then finally, may it rekindle our fervor in our proclamation of it. May we be unashamed in our proclamation to those who are lost. Especially this time of year. That's what we're celebrating. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love? Help us to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Water the hearts of those who have heard your word preached, and may the seeds sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. For your glory, for our good, and for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen.